This episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the first place I go to keep my business skills sharp. They offer over 150,000 books on business, finance, planning, and much more. They also have a great selection of fiction that keeps me entertained when I'm just not up for some serious content. I love it because I can buy a book, download it to my iPhone, and listen while running errands or at the gym. Get your free trial at freelancershow.com slash audible. This episode is brought to you by CodeSchool. CodeSchool offers interactive online courses in Ruby, JavaScript, HTML, CSS, and iOS. Their courses are fun and interesting and include exercises for the student. To level up your development skills, go to freelancershow.com slash CodeSchool. This episode is brought to you by ProXPN. If you're out and about on public Wi-Fi, you never know who might be listening. With ProXPN, you no longer have to worry. ProXPN is a VPN solution which sends all of your traffic over a secure connection to one of their servers around the world. To sign up, go to ProXPN.com and use the promo code TMTCS, short for Teach Me to Code Screencasts, to get 10% off for life. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 144 of the Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, uh, I'm the panel and I'm here with Mike Hostetler. Sorry, I was hey that up. That's uh, all right. You want to introduce yourself really quickly? Sure. Hi, everybody. As Chuck explained, I'm Mike Hostetler. I am a JavaScript developer turned CTO turned freelancer, currently working out of Chicago, Illinois. And I've been freelancing for several years, currently consulting, sort of freelancing, and excited to talk about a whole bunch of different things today. Awesome. I think the thing we booked you for was uh, remote work. Yep. So let's just go ahead and start there, and then I'm sure there are other things that are interesting to talk about. I mean, you've done quite a bit, and so, yeah, if we run out of remote work talk, then we can talk about something else. Yeah, so I'll give you a bit of background to get things kicked off. Five years ago, I set out to start a company that was completely remote. Now, five years ago, you have to sort of take yourself back. This was not a normal thing. It's not super normal now, but... Uh, it was more abnormal five years ago. And we started a company where not only could everybody work from home, but we, we specifically designed and built the company in such a way that people could move around. They could move anywhere. We sort of made this rule that if our laptop died, when, you know, we were carrying around backpacks or whatever your bag was, if your laptop died, you could be back up and running in any role in the company in two hours or less. Which is, it goes, it takes the remote idea further and further than anybody had taken it that we had known of to date. I love it. And it was really cool. We went on this wild ride and, and figured it out along the way. I, I really like the idea. I think if you're just like a solo guy uh, like me, I guess I'm not completely solo guy. I do sell other people's time too. But if you're just a freelancer that, you know, you don't have anyone else in the company, you know, you you pretty well are there. I hope. Um, you know, your your machine goes down. You mm-hmm. you load in. You know, restore from a backup. Uh, install a few programs. You know, and you can at least function until you get everything else plugged in. Where infrastructure and where all of the services that we regularly use now as freelancers are today? Yeah, that's a that's a realistic assumption, mm-hmm. which is great from a company perspective because as we started out on this journey we made the jump from just a bunch of freelancers working together into a company. And the distinction between the two that I kind of, and this is by no means official, was we had people reporting to me that had two extra levels of people reporting to them. We did not have a flat structure. 
Nothing wrong with that. But we had we had four levels. And four levels is key because you know, if you have somebody reporting to you, you you're usually in communication with that third level from one to three. But when you get one to four, you don't really don't talk to those people. It's like a degree of separation. Mm-hmm. And we had to figure out how this looked, how it worked at that scale. And it was, uh, it was, it was very interesting along the way. So how do you get to the point where you can do that within a company? So specifically regarding scaling and scaling to that size of a team, the way that I viewed it, the way I, I planned it out and as I looked at it as, you know, there are common activities, common principles that apply at each level. And my glasses that I look at companies with and I run companies with is you companies are full of humans and humans are these creative, complicated, just people and when you stick them in a room together, you never quite know what's going to happen. So you, you have to assume that we're not machines who just, again, follow some programming code. We, we come with all of this context of the rest of our lives that, that happens outside of work, right? Two-thirds of the time, we sleep, we have a family, we live in a community. All of this stuff happens, and, and the, the humans bring all of that to work. That's the first thing. So. When you then scale through the levels of an organization, you start with the human relationship between levels one and two. And that human relationship is one person is in authority over another. Why are they in authority? Well, they're in authority because they have a greater responsibility. The person at the top is responsible for a wider range of things than the person at the the next level down. And, And again, that's okay. That's how organizations work. So when you do that, it is the job of that person, that, uh, that leader, to make sure that everything, and this, this gets into a little bit of philosophy, but of it's kind of a servant leadership philosophy, but it's their job to make sure that the, the level down from them is clear on what the expectations are, understand what dates those expectations need to be fulfilled by if there are dates, and then have they have all the resources they need if possible right resources are always tight mm-hmm. but if possible and when you set that up that's kind of the base that's that's the mechanical side the other side of it is the culture and the culture applies at every level of the organization but people higher up the chain are the ones who set and define the culture so if you have a well defined culture for instance in append to one of our things that we kind of the cornerstones of our culture was work-life balance. I have young kids and I, as the leader, as the owner, the entrepreneur, I was not willing to put the company ahead of my family. That you're an entrepreneur, we, we have to fill hours, all of those things. You have to work hard, but there's a point where you won't, you don't want to work hard and then wake up in 10 years realizing you you let other important things go. So that manifested itself in things like if you can spend an extra $100 and get a plane ticket home from a conference, the evening after the conference, 
or the next morning, which you're paying hotel, so that's kind of a win-win, do it because you can get home to your family faster. Or you know, set regularly scheduled work hours and maintain kind of a balance so you're mentally fresh when you come into work and you don't work long, too long of hours too, so you're too exhausted to do your job well. We, we preached and lived out this work-life balance. That's the culture side. The culture goes everywhere. And then the hierarchy you know, is, is all about setting expectations, leading, equipping with resources, and then monitoring performance. And we set up a real simple system there and then provided feedback loops down the chain to equip people to be successful. That, that's really interesting. I'm, I'm kind of curious, what kind of systems did you put in place in order to make sure that people could, at least to whatever degree they could, you know, kind of maintain that work-life balance? Because I know it's something that a lot of freelancers really struggle with is, mm-hmm. how do I find that balance? How do I meet the expectations that, that are on me? And yeah, because it seems like it kind of comes and goes. And so sometimes I'm really good at it and sometimes I'm not. Totally. The first thing that I do personally is I set a budget. It, it all comes back to money. That is the, the scorecard. That is the point system. Like th- that, that's what it comes back to. And personally, I, in a scenario, like a freelancing scenario, what I, what I did, and I'm kind of revisiting this now is I just, I put my head down and I just, I like bulldoze through. I put my head down and I ignore, I shut off those other parts of life. So, you know, I'll lock my door to my, I have a, a closed door office. So I'll lock the door to my office and I just go and just work, 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 work. Because I, you just get those blinders on. So yeah, I set a budget because that gives me the overall view. I am big on spreadsheets. I, spreadsheets provide, especially Google Docs, the new version two of their spreadsheets tool. Provides a great way to collaborate and share information collaboratively with other people. So I build a lot of my systems using that. And I have a, uh, a couple of things. But the first is I have a, a budget. We worked on two-week sprints, which I should uh, actually tell you about another tool I developed. But I'll we'll maybe can make some of these templates available in the show notes. But I work off two-week sprints, and I budget for how much money I needed to earn in a two-week sprint first to cover all of my expenses. So I have a sheet that lists out, okay, Basecamp is here, GitHub is here. And I put that all on there. I add it all up, add my salary, and I come out with a number. And then I go back and let's say, you know, you take your number and you divide that over 26 periods. And here's, you know, here's what I should be aiming for. Now, Put the budget to a side for a second. I want to tell you about something else I came up with to find that work-life balance. Pet peeve, this is a little bit of a soapbox, but I hate our calendar. The Julian calendar, as it's called, uh, was created by a pope sometime a long time ago. <laughs> and I think it's really, it does not fit in my brain. I, I, I have this big pet peeve that I really don't like our calendar. Mm-hmm especially in a company scenario, the months are uneven. Like that is the dumbest thing ever. I understand leap years, I understand all of that, and I'm sure it, you know, people with an astronomy background will tell me that I'm wrong, but I, I just I don't think in uneven periods. In trying to report that is all weird. Many, 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 many a systems programmer has probably cursed Pope Julian 
at some point in, <laughs> in fight, you know, fighting dates. So what I did is I just, I just said, forget this. I'm going to make a calendar myself on two week periods, 14 day periods. And the, and the name, the length of that period is fixed. So my year, my New Year's Day was actually yesterday. And it goes Saturday night to Sunday morning. And I have 26 14-day periods in a year. Now, that, that's, that's not exactly 365 days. I'll get to that in a second. Well, it's 26 evenly spaced periods of two weeks, a sprint, we called it, in the calendar year. Now, I cut that in half. And you have 13 sprints left. Now, 13 sprints, again, is an odd number. And what are you going to do with an odd number? So I actually, going back to my budget, I budget to work for 12 weeks, 12 sprints, and take the 13th sprint off. One week for vacation, one week for getting the team together or going and doing something fun for in June or July. Mm-hmm. And then the second half of the year, I take two weeks off at Christmas and New Year's. Right. So I work two batches of 12 sprints over a given year, and I budget for it uh, as a freelancer. So I'm earning enough cash to that over the entire calendar year. Now, you have to deal with the extra days that accrue. Every six or seven years, you need to add an extra week in to keep it on schedule. But it, it generally works out really well. We actually had to add one last week. So last week was our, sort of our orphan week. But this has actually been incredibly helpful for me to maintain that balance because I'm on a, I'm on a consistent cycle. I know when my quarters are, I plan everything around that. And I know that, okay, if I can earn extra money in the first half of the year, I have more room second half of the year. We have, you know, I can, I break into, have quarters of six sprint quarters. So again, doesn't fully match our calendar year. I have dates because you have to match it up with, with our calendar dates, but I just work off of a different schedule. And that has, that consistency, one, it reduces mental RAM. It gives me a tool to plan against, to, to build my business against, my freelancer business against, such that I can, can maintain this consistent pace and make sure I really build in those two-week cool-down periods every year, which is a month off, right? I mean, mm-hmm. but when we work as freelancers, it, you, you work doesn't always fit into a 40-hour work week like somebody in an office. Right. It's, 45, 50, 55, 60 sometimes because it ebbs and flows. And, and the way you have to deal with those ebbs and flows is build in the cool down times. That's how people do it. So I have, I have templates for this. I'm actually, it's on my list to blog about my Mike's crazy calendar. And I, I may throw in my budget system in there as well. We can link those in the show notes or on my blog at mike-hostetler.com. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering though, how do you deal with the things that are on the regular calendar, like birthdays or holidays or things like that? I just you add them in there. They fit. The sprints go down to again instead of ten business days, they go to nine business days. So oh, okay, yeah, I mean just like just like normal. We ran this schedule in a pen two for five years. We didn't do a great job of taking off the two week cooldowns. We hadn't. The, the idea hadn't formalized to that point. We just ran 26 periods and we 
slowed down significantly during Christmas. But in my new freelancing company, I've already set this up and anybody who, who works with us or joins us follows the schedule. That's really interesting. I might have to go ahead and try it. I think it makes a lot of sense just in the sense that it's, you know, I just do the consistent thing and... Mm -hmm. Because we work hard. Freelancers work hard, right? Oh, yeah. You get right down to the bare metal of, if you don't work, you don't eat. (laughs) That's so true. And then you get caught up in it. So then you, you know, you go two years later, like I did the first, when I first started doing this, of you work through every holiday you work through Memorial Day. Who, what is Memorial Day? Christmas, you, t- you take a half day or, you know, you, you answer emails in the afternoon. If you have kids, <laughs> it's worse. I mean, let's, let's be honest with it. We're in a heavily connected society and, and I think it's going to take a bigger, uh, you have to you carve out bigger chunks of discipline. I actually got this idea from Brad Feld, who, when he first got married, if you don't know Brad Feld, he's a VC in Boulder, Colorado. Great guy. He runs a blog. It's been a real big blog called Feld Thoughts, F-E-L-D dot com, I believe. And it's something else in the show notes. He, he went to MIT and went through his first company, and his wife got mad at him because he worked too much. No kids, so different situation um, than, than mine at the moment, but his wife got upset with him, justifiably so, but it, it's often it's excused as the startup life. Well, mm-hmm. didn't want to get divorced. So what he did, I thought was incredibly clever. And that was twice a year. He took a full week off, just build it in, build it in. So everybody knows twice a year, took a full week off. And then every quarter he took his wife away for a four day weekend. And it, it was, you know, still that intense schedule because it's much harder as humans to, like, we, we work at a given pace. Everybody has their own sort of normal pace. And that normal freelancer pace is often you're at your own red line. If you go over too long, you get sick, you balance, you balance back. Everybody sort of knows how to balance that in their own way. But oftentimes it's more than 40 hours a week. I mean, that's a dream. Yeah, absolutely. And you're talking about getting sick. I mean, I got stressed, I got busy, and then I almost got pneumonia. And the almost pneumonia got me shingles. And I mean, that's been my last two weeks. Mm -hmm. You know, there were things that I needed to get done, and they just didn't happen. It didn't happen. And, you know, and so it is, it's kind of this pipe dream. I mean, you're either going to take the time or you're going to be made to take the time. Yep. Mm-hmm. And it, we, here's a interesting lesson learned about a pen two. We organized ourselves to set up the billing structure to be a 32 hour week. So we'd only book people to, to bill 32 hours a week. Now, this seemed a great idea at the time. I think it is a great idea. It comes from a good place. However, the implementation of that idea, we never quite nailed. And that is, what do you do with the extra eight hours? I think 32 billable is about right. Mm-hmm. And then, what do you do with the extra eight hours? And then, not only that, people work more. <coughs> so, you don't, like, why would you tell somebody to go home, right, at 40 hours? If you're working at your own personal, everybody sort of has their own beats per minute, their own pace. Mm-hmm. Slightly different. Mine is about 50, 55 hours a week. That is a, that's a very sustainable pace for me. Now that's 
a bunch of different types of activities, some intense, some less intense. But that's where I, and I've tracked myself enough. Uh, Desktime.com, cool tracker. I think it's a, a rebrand of another one that was around, but they've done enough. Desktime just tracks everything that you're doing. You can actually get these really cool graphs of how much time you're actually spending at your machine. So I install it on my work machine, and it tracks my time transparently. And 50, 55 hours a week, that's my normal pace. If I work less, I get frustrated. If I work more, I get stressed, sick, tired, and then I lose time with my family because I'm in bed. So what's better? Everybody needs to find that normal pace, and then I think find that balance. And that balance ends up looking a little bit different for everybody. How do, you, I, how do you know if you've hit that balance though? I mean, do you just track it and then, you know, it feels right or feels good for a I while? Think it's, a, it's a tracking thing. You have to collect data on yourself, observe yourself. I, I've always been a big proponent of self-observation through objective means. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why I like desk time. Before I started freelancing, I actually made a, a game a single player game to track my time and then give myself positive or negative points compared to the types of activities I wanted to do because I was really, really bored at my job. And I used that to sort of get this self-awareness of what I was spending my time on. There's a lot of different ways to do that, but again, desk time is a a great one. So once you find that balanced, productive place... I think it actually can be a disservice to you know hand people, oh, just work 32 hours. I, I think by giving them that number, it gives them a target to hit a minimum. And once they hit it, it's rare to have somebody go beyond it. Just because, again, go back to the human nature. If we're given goals, we usually hit those goals and don't go beyond it. Mm-hmm. So... so- uh, as far as working from home goes, I just kind of want to dig into that a little bit more. Sure. So first off, one thing that I run into occasionally, not super frequently, but it does happen occasionally, and that is that I have clients that object. You know, they want you on site. They want you to be under their thumb. They want you to be doing things their way. How much of that do you give into, and how do you sell them on having somebody remote where they can't watch you and know that you're doing the right things all the time? Yeah. I say no. <laughs> that's what I do, but right. I mean, I, I think that that's that really is the only answer. I so interesting because a pen to we said no. Okay, mm-hmm. I have a pen to for those who don't know. Actually, sun, we sunset the company last year. There's a big story to it, but we decided to close it down. There's a lot behind it. Maybe we can we can switch to that topic, and I can add a little bit more color to the story, but. Uh, Pentu was an operating company. I have an, another company called Epic Creative, which is my company. That was me, where Pentu was designed to be able to bring in other partners if necessary. And working out of that now, and especially being here in Chicago Metro, I opened the door back up to being on site. And I'm working with a, a client now where I go and spend a day with them. And I did that intentionally to when a pen to shut down, I, I had this goal of spreading my wings as wide as they could go to get back and experience some of the things I hadn't done career-wise in several years. I've been working from home for eight years uh, and never, I would go on site for, you know, small things, maybe a week mm-hmm. at a time. That was it. And I'm with a, with a company that I go down there every Tuesday and they have not had success with on site. 
And it's been a great case study to understand why and understand the balance. On the whole, I would say that I still am a firm believer in that in remote working does work 90% of the time. That last 10%, and we never got this right in a pen tube because we didn't invest in it, frankly, which was a regret and something I will be doing differently going forward. But there is something very important that happens when two human beings meet face to face. And I've kind of subtly, which they'll probably listen to this podcast now and they know who they are. So I've kind of subtly been introducing and testing the the waters to see if we could do a little bit of remote work with this Tuesday client in different ways and, and just, you know, test some things out to deliver them value, but to show them a different way to do it. Because I think that the problem is their work style necessitates being on site, which again, nothing wrong with that. Uh, you have to start with a remote work style. Some companies do, some companies don't. And then this is the other balance. If you start with a remote work style, you really, 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 really need to make sure you're investing in FaceTime. I think a minimum twice a year with the people you work with on a daily basis. That FaceTime, that sitting down, working side by side, seeing people's work styles, it's almost like this greases the wheels of workplace friction. And looking back at a pen tune now, I see, I see opportunities we had and people I would see regularly because we'd see each other at conferences or on-site consulting. And, and there was a group that I, I saw on a regular basis. So I felt very close to versus the others who the role was such that we just didn't. And I do regret not investing in that as a company for everyone because we, I don't think we, we were, it was, it was something lost that I would definitely change. So if you do commit to going remote, if you're 100% remote, that FaceTime is absolutely necessary. I think at a minimum every six months of working together for a week. That's kind of what I, I've, my rule of thumb at the moment. That's a very new and evolving component of remote work for me. But that FaceTime is critical. Now, when you say FaceTime, you're not talking about like video chat, right? You're talking no, no. about in-person in person, getting in a room together, working side by side on something you both care about, and yeah, doing that, get you know, getting the the the, the side by side work time together. Gotcha. So actually working together, yes, not actually even just together side by side. Right. So it's not okay. We're gonna go hang out at the amusement park together. But Correct. Uh, right. I think that working side by side, you you need both, right? You need to have the fun, and you can. I wouldn't say you need to work full time all day, eight hours a day, like you would normally at home. I, in going on site to this Tuesday thing, I found myself being incredibly more productive and effective working from home. I will say that. Mm-hmm. So that's been a, a good reminder. <laughs> but again, that's not a bad thing too, because you're building that social, calling it grease is kind of a weird word. I need to come up with a different word for this. Right. Friction remover, social capital. I don't know. I'll just brainstorm that one out, but. Yeah, interesting sense. stuff. Interesting stuff. So, yeah. So one thing that I struggle with sometimes when I'm working from home is just getting distracted. Mm-hmm. I think the desk time thing will, you know, highlight some of that. 
because mm-hmm. it'll say, hey, you, I'm just barely looking into it, but it looks like it tracks what you're on and what you're doing. So it'll tell me, hey, you are on Skype, which is, you know, I'm talking to you. Yep. Um, but if I'm doing something else, then it'll tell me that I spent so much time on whatever website or something, I'm guessing. Correct. And if you install the Chrome extension, which I use Chrome, there's Firefox and all that stuff too, you can actually get the, the title, you know, the HTML titles of the, the sites that you visit. So if you go to Facebook, mm-hmm. it'll track Facebook separately, which is pretty convenient. I hate Facebook, but I have a couple of Facebook groups that I'm a mm-hmm. part of that are incredibly valuable. I have listed Facebook as a unproductive app, but I sort of give myself a free pass on that one to make right. sure stats say hi. Right. That makes sense. So then you just track it and then you say, okay, I got to spend less time on this. Yep. Mm-hmm. This is my time suck. <laughs> Make yep. it go away. And so then you cut back. Is there a way to tell it, hey, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't on the work time right now. So I, you it know. has a private time. Yeah. You can go, you can log it as private time and okay. it just doesn't record it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but cool do, app. Yeah. Very cool. Do you have any techniques though for people who are, Working from home, you know, the boss isn't going to walk by the, you know, whatever. I mean, for me, as long as I get all the work done for my clients, they're happy. Yep. But I would like to get more work done. So how do you stay productive when you're at home? I mean, I shut the door. I lock my kids out. So that's, yep. that's kind of solved. Yep. Closed door, understanding of your goals and what the measurements are. Because you, hours work does not necessarily equal dollars mm-hmm. in a freelancing business. So I go back to that budget and it is okay if you work 20 hours a week to hit that budget. That's a, that's completely valid outcome depending on what you want to do and and understanding your goals, right? You have to, again, get back to that self-assessment. And if you need to be in an environment where you're only productive, if the boss walks by, two things will happen. One is if you jump in as a freelancer and you need to be in that environment and you have the sales and you don't do the work, you won't get paid and then you'll find yourself in a you know Maslow's hierarchy of needs situation and you'll either you know, get by on less, which again, a viable outcome, right? Mm-hmm. Or you'll start working more and it'll naturally happen. Or you need to go find a different kind of job environment and you do well. You're the type of person that does well in, in a different environment. And that could be from potentially not getting the sales. Your what you do specifically isn't in demand. I'm, I'm assuming we're not talking to just programmers here. Right. Which is, it's okay. It really is okay. I think freelancing is the future and having those freelancing skills are really, really valuable and they're valuable to any employer. I specifically and particularly look for people who have six months plus freelancing experience because as employees, they prove to be fantastic employees because they understand that environment, those pressures, and have dealt with them and lived with them for an extended period of time. It's Um, funny you say that because I've I've met plenty of uh, managers and business owners who won't hire people who have been freelance because they're afraid they're going to leave. Oh, really? Yeah. They're only afraid that they're going to leave if they don't know how to deal with them. That's yes. the manager's fault. I agree. I, I love agree. freelancers. I love it. I mean, I just, it's, it's the future. It really is the future, in my opinion. I completely agree. I think more and more people are going to be in a position where they can be more productive out of the office than in the office. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where we're going to wind up. 
cool stuff. I, I think you know economically, as companies, it comes down to what what is it? What does employment look like? Mm-hmm. First, you need to understand the purpose of a company. The purpose of a company is to make money. That's a very okay thing. How does a company make money? Generalizing a little bit, there's a couple of caveats with you know B Corps and, and some different stuff. I have a great talk on this called Our Relationship with Work is Broken that I gave at DevLink last year. So I got to heavily footnote that statement. But generally, <laughs> the purpose of a company is to make money. Right. So how does that happen? There's management who organizes the work. And there's people who actually do the work to scale these these hierarchies of, of people. And at the end of the day, most freelancers have figured this out. If you provide value consistently, value doesn't necessarily mean deliverables. It doesn't necessarily mean hours. If you provide that value consistently, you get more work usually. If you help push that organization forward in some way, that's usually valuable. And then, if you, if that, that is the, that's the bedrock of what the relationship looks like between the employee and the company. If you understand that, you train people to sort of perceive and see and, and judge how that works, how that looks. The rest of the, what we typically, you know, drape on as the employment relationship is just trimmings to deal with people who don't know that bedrock principle. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, come to work, move widget from spot A to spot B and, you know, do this thing. The interesting thing is that robots and automation, those move widget from A to B is getting automated. What is going to be left that robots will never be able to overcome. Mark Andreessen has a bunch of cool stuff on AI and singularity and uh, Peter Diamandis as well. If you read any of his stuff is what robots will never be able to overcome, and, and they never, ever come close to this with AI, is human judgment. Human judgment is how you provide value. If you get into a role where most of what you're doing is providing your own judgment to complete a task and doing that all day long, you're, you're generally providing value. Machines don't write code because it takes judgment to write code. Mm-hmm. It does. Human judgment. Yeah. That's the same thing will never be automated. Neural nets, none of that stuff ever gets close. That's why I'm not worried about singularity. Created things, this is, goes back to why I you know, named the company Epic Creative. Created things cannot create something more intelligent than themselves. So it's a, um, uh, this is a science, I've got to think of the name of the, 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 the scientific principle behind this, but if they can't create something more, you can create AI that follows a really complicated decision-making structure. It could teach itself things, but it can't replicate that same experience and judgment that a human imparts into it. So as a freelancer, you go back and you focus on giving them your judgment, giving them your experience. And if you're new to it, just soak up everything you can and learn. And then offer your opinion. Wait to offer your opinion in, in situations where it's really necessary. As you grow, as you learn, you'll get better and you'll be able to offer your opinion and add value in bigger and bigger ways. That's why people higher up the chain get paid more money because they're providing more value. Mm-hmm. And at some point, you reach, a, you reach a point where 
your value is not linked to an hourly rate because hourly rates only go so high. You get up into oil worker, oil consultant rates of four or $500 an hour or even high-scale lawyers of you know 500 to 1,000 an hour, which is crazy amounts of money. You pass that human beings sort of check out. So you have to come up with ways to earn money where you're more scalable than, than an hourly rate. But that's more of an, a different talk, I think. Yeah. So I guess the next thing I want to go into is just, uh, I, I kind of want to go back into the, the productivity thing for a minute. Sure. So let's say that I start tracking things and, you know, I can see my time, my time sucks, but you know, so I get rid of those. I get rid of all the things that I'm wasting time on, you know, that I'm spending time on that aren't paying off, at, at least in the sense of the obvious ones, right? So, you know, playing video games or something stupid. Sure. How do I get more done? How do I get, how do I make my hours count for more? You know, we, we talked about value. We talked about what that is. We talked about some of the, the judgment calls that you make, and that's, Great you know, question. that's a lot of the value. But how do I make that count for more dollars in my pocket or more? you know, more work done for my client? Good question. So I'm going to make a couple of some assumptions in answering this because especially in a service-based business, a freelancer business that we're talking about here, what does that look like? And, and again, assumption in a freelancer business, let's say, let's assume that you have 40 billable hours a week. We're going to leave those the previous conversation that we had mm-hmm. uh, out of here around doing more and your balance hours, whatever. Leave that aside for a second. You're working with just 40 hours, and your billable rate is $100 an hour, which I'm, I'm guessing that is, for a programmer, about average. Probably. So your max that you can earn in an ideal week is $4,000 a week, $16,000 a month or two sprints. Remember my month mm-hmm. only lasts four weeks, every right. single month. It's awesome. You should totally check out this calendar. <laughs> so you, for four, you have $16,000 a month. How do you earn beyond that? How do you earn more? I mean, there's a couple of different ways. And this is this gets into the, the business side of freelancing. The business side is, one, you know, you're, you come up with a contract at $100 an hour to deliver a certain amount of agreed upon value to your customers. Okay, so you could raise your hourly rate. Yes. But there's a ceiling to that. The the high hourly rates I know of right now, especially in technology, are either archaic technologies like COBOL and Fortran, super, super cutting edge technologies like Node.js. But there, to get a good rate with Node, you have to have either significant open source investment or there's there's something else that mm-hmm. gives you that kind of value. You can hire more people and expand horizontally. When you do that, you take on a management and overhead burden, both business operation risks risk-wise and, you know, it's management is a separate skill. If you've never managed people before, look at it as a separate skill that you have to learn because that's exactly what it is. That Again, they've you know that's what an MBA is to, to some degree, man, learning how to manage people. Or you can get into products, and and the value of the product is centered around not the hourly rate, but the, the intrinsic value of the product to the person that's buying it. Now that is how companies get big. Right? 
very few companies truly get big based off of just billing hourly. There's a few pounding firms, big, big consulting firms like Accenture, but their business model to make them work are, are very cutthroat. And as freelancers, you're probably, you'll do well at, you know, maybe one, two, three people. But expanding past that without, you know, pulling on this extra skill set is, is difficult without that management expertise. The last thing is, is, so the alternative is to get into products. Products mm-hmm. are a, a tricky beast. And I have made several attempts myself. I can't claim success in any of them yet, quite frankly. And, and part of that is focus. Part, you know, there's a lot that goes into that rather than the intrinsic value. I've never really raced after it full time because I chose the middle route and, and a pen to ended up being about 35 people of, of, you know, sharing hourly rates back and forth. And for the immediate future, I'm back in the hourly rate game, but I'm using the tools we've discussed in this podcast. I am doing it a little bit differently in such that I am, you know, budgeting properly. I'm not just earning as much as I can and I'm working on scaling out and building out products. Now, the, the, the most important thing I've found in understanding and nailing down products is nailing that value proposition. And that, that, again, that's a completely different you know, subject, ballpark to go into. But when that value proposition is nailed, then you just need to find your market. Once you find your market, you need to effectively market your product to them. Now, products don't last forever. That's the other fallacy of, I'll just get something going and I'll be rich. You may make some money, but you probably should still calculate your hourly rate going into it because time is the only thing that we're all consistently bound to. And it just comes down to how effective we are. And if your dollars per hour, what's what's your earning rate per hour the only way you get over as a freelancer, you know, 200, $250, $300 an hour is to effectively scale yourself through either an organization by learning management or through a product where, you know, the product gets big, you're going to have to learn management anyway. So it's a, it's an interesting road to go down. Yeah. Very interesting. All right. So. Yeah. That's definitely a road that I'm looking at going down right now as well. So I know you have a hard stop coming up, so we'll go ahead and get into picks. Do you have some yep. picks for us? There's a great article. I'll, I'll just mention the picks that I had as we went through the show notes. Feld Thoughts, the Brad Feld's blog. If you're looking to get into this management site or entrepreneurship, it's a great place to start. Desktime.com. Desktime is an app that I use to track my own productivity and, and time. And the templates that I'll, I, we discussed, I'll, uh, I'll look at making those available in the show notes and on my blog as well here in, in a couple of days. So that's my picks for now. Awesome. I'm really excited to see those uh, templates. I guess I'll just share some of the tools that I'm using these days. One of them is Backblaze, which is just a, a backup system. It's just a way of backing up your stuff. It's pretty inexpensive, and I really like them. So I'm going to pick Backblaze, and I'm also going to just say this. It doesn't really have anything to do with anything, but uh, this week is CES. It's Consumer Electronics Show. I have gone the last two or three years, and I just 
couldn't make it this year, you know, partially due to my health and partially due to just other things going on. And so I'm kind of sad. So I'm going to pick the Consumer Electronics Show and uh, plan on going next year. But, uh, yeah, those are my picks. Cool. Uh, well, thanks for coming, Mike. It was fun to talk. I, I got a lot out of it. Hopefully yeah, uh, you. you and the listeners also got a bunch out of it. Hope so. And Appreciate it. And uh, look forward to the next show. Yeah. Catch everyone next week. This episode is sponsored by Mad Glory. You've been building software for a long time, and sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. Work piles up, hiring sucks, and it's hard to get projects out the door. Check out Mad Glory. They're a small shop with experience shipping big products. They're smart, dedicated, will augment your team, and work as hard as you do. Find them online at madglory.com or on Twitter at madglory. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the Freelancer Show panelists and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. Sign up at freelancershow.com slash forum.